This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. This, of course, is the podcast that scrutinizes Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, a minute at a time, all 166 minutes of that deep dive, including many other bonus episodes, are available in the back catalog. You are now listening to the Heat 2 Book Club, a special mini-series which we are plugging in at the end of this one bumper episode per chapter of Michael Mann and Meg Gardner's New York Times bestseller. Here's a little book trailer made by a friend of the show before we get started, one Vashi Nidamansky. The novel begins one day after the end of well, the movie Heat. And the last one left alive is Chris Hurlis. He's wounded, delirious, and is desperate to get out of Los Angeles. That's the beginning. What fascinates me, what I'm drawn to, is drama, and drama is conflict. I always wanted to do this book. It may be perceived as a twist. For me, it's not, it's not really a twist. It's really the fulfillment of something I wanted to do for so long. For me, I always try to go very, very deep. Here's why you are the way you are, so that there's a whole life. I'm trying to create a fabric of reality that's as complex and believable as you experience your own reality where you're from. I really wanted to do more with the three-dimensional understanding of these people, their past, and then also project them into, into the futures that they might have. So, so good, Vashi. Thank you so much. Vashi Nidamansky, if you want to go check out his website, it's vashivisuals.com. An incredible just resource for all movie heads and especially to really lift and elevate the craft of editing to a level that I think it absolutely and utterly deserves. Vashi, you're a legend, huge friend of the show. Thank you so, so much. Now we get to it. We are up to part we are on the U.S.-Mexican border in 1988, and to help us unpack this absolutely stuffed action sequence featuring the Macaulay crew going as hard as they've ever gone, incursions into a cartel hotel, canyon shootouts, we have got a dynamic duo. The writer, director, and producer of Mending the Line, infamous negative layover and MTV movie award winner Josh Caldwell joins us again a great friend of the show a terrific chat as always and I'm so looking forward to talking to him every time and the man who worked with Wes Studi and Brian Cox two of the kings of the Michael Mann universe thank you Josh can't wait to share that chat and following up one of the best one of my absolute favorites. And if you love anything that we've done, you love this lady. She is my sister from another mister. She is my undercover partner in all things Miami Nice, the modern man horny campfire, 
It's, of course, the critic for the LA Times, moderator extraordinaire, Katie Walsh. Let's go back to 1988. We could cut into the delivery on the road between Chicago and Mexicali, hijack the cash truck outside Winslow one night at 4am. I do not doubt we could take down the truck in under two minutes and get away clean. These aren't Brinks trucks. Hit it. Boom. Done. They look chill and focus. But, he says, do that and they know we've identified their routes out of Chicago. Maybe figured out we ripped off their computer disks and they look for us. And cartels do not stop looking until they find you. He lets that hang in the air. We get one shot at this. We do it on this side of the border. Two reasons. One, because that way it can't be traced to the spreadsheets in our score. He looks at them. He looks at them. Two, because we tailed a single truck, but four trucks delivered money to the stash house today. He pauses. We hit the motel. That's the honeypot. Michael nods. Fucking A. How many cambios? Neil says. The woman I tailed hit six. Chris nods. The man I followed went to seven. Same at all. Neil does the math. It's eight figures, maybe 10 million plus. They bring it back to the motel, fucking check it down to the last bill, and once they do that, they send it out again. Where to? Don't matter. Probably getting rolled up for deposit at international banks around Mexico. He looks at them. The point is, we'll have a short window to take the hundreds. Michael's face lights up. We're doing it. I know where the count room is. It will be tough and tight, Neil says, but there's a weakness in the motel security. The way the guards are stationed, they have a blind spot. His heart is pounding. We exploit that. It's our way in. Some of you guys might remember a Miami Nice conversation with the great writer, director, filmmaker, Michael Mann aficionado, Josh Caldwell, who I'm talking to today, because this guy finds the errors in match cuts and, and he finds the errors in transitions to scenes and this is like a filmmaker who sits in an editing suite, folks. That's part of the reason why I think uh, our obsessions align talking to him. When Josh said he wanted to come and talk on the Heat 2 Book Club, it was an offer that I couldn't refuse. Man, thank you so much for coming back to talk to us on One Heat Minute. And on the OG, we're, we're starting up this old Chevy and we're, we're kicking it off again for a few episodes to talk about the novelization, Heat 2, from Meg and Michael. First and foremost... Were you scared, Josh, about the prospect of this coming out as a filmmaker and as a fan of Heat? No, I was excited about it. Oh, that's good. It's uh, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, any sort of, you know, um, output from Michael is exciting. You know, if you're a fan, and and to for it to be, you know, uh, in for book some form, of us, we for some of us, we're obsessed with commercials. Yeah, we're obsessed yeah, yeah. with uh, a television. Oh, he pilots. did an interview, or <laughs> an article a, was written about him. There's a great Twitter account, Manfax. Shout out Manfax, who has actually been on our show. Great kid, but like, I feel like he's like 
it's like fashion. It's like, oh, a new man just dropped, you know, like it's a yeah. new interview, it's a new start and it comes out. Who's got it? Who pre-ordered <laughs> first? Yeah. It's very cool. No, I mean, I was excited. But, you know, it's exciting to actually talk about it because I, uh, you know, I, I feel like one of the great um, regrets of my life was I was not able to participate in uh, in uh, the One Heat Minute original podcast because uh, I didn't hear about it till it was almost over. So oh. I'm making up for it on this one. But oh. when, when Heat 2 comes out in movie form, we'll... Uh, We'll probably reconvene on that, uh, and I'll probably I, regret a lot of the things I say in this. <laughs> I think, I think, I I almost am like I can't say this is a good topic. Two things: number one, I can fire up a one heat minute. We can go classic again. I'll make you pick a minute. I'll keep you in the confines of it as a special bonus. That's something I would do for you. Roll out the red carpet. Right. We can totally do that. Let's put that on the list. Um, okay, that sounds good that firstly secondly it's i don't know we are now we will be at like 190 odd episodes of one heat minute including the heat two book club and bonus episodes and there's just something about 200 josh that makes me mm. say is this the last dance is this yeah. the last dance are we okay to retire? That is a good one to end on it's just could we just Nice and even. Nice even and even. Number. It'll and then the entire suite of everything that we've done will always be there. It's like yeah. just there's something poetic about it. So we'll put that on the list for early. Maybe next maybe year. if you add up the trailers and the you know the <laughs> those things, you get to the two hundred. Uh, that makes sense. I just just quickly fudge the numbers to get last twelve minutes of the Mohicans in there. No, um, but but I think it's <laughs> I think it's I think it's close. You know, I it's yeah. one of those things that I'm so blessed continue to have all of our amazing shows but like that's a, that's our namesake i'm so proud of it but i now feel like maybe that's we're getting close we're getting close i can't commit to another minute podcast just yet there's too uh, many other things going on i can imagine i mean that's an undertaking you know and once yeah. you've done it it's sort of like climbing everest you're like all right great i did it let's just yeah. do some smaller peaks for now on you know yeah. for a little while yeah like I, I i did the lunatic thing of going straight into um uh presidents but they were so different. They're so yeah. different movies and you exercise different muscles and you talk about different things. It's nice, but it's like, yeah, yeah. with Heat, I feel like, um, as my best friend Maria Lewis puts it, who's a prodigious author, she's like, only when you've done 120 excruciating hours on Heat can you even be close to Blake in one heat minute. <laughs> Um, and oh, she's yeah, like, it's, sure. just, it's just like the pain of supporting you through listening to every one of those episodes should get me some kind of extra special credit and i'm like yeah bless you thank you so much because i mean what they're almost an hour each probably average i mean yeah they were like 40 hours they were like 40 45 they were like 45 yeah, yeah now it's even longer like who who knows what it is now you know some of these longer yeah. episodes that have done oh man but let's get into your chapter because what's exciting is and this was you know i think for me this was the point in the book just because of the way that it was structured in the world building when we get about halfway through this part part four which is on the u.s mexican border in 1988 i think that this is the part of the book where literally my hand could not keep up with my eyes wanting to read and it was one of those moments where like i was just flying through this thing every every yeah. piece of it started to hit a crescendo for me so why did you want to talk about part four what drew you to this 
US-Mexican border in 1988 in Heat 2? You know, I was thinking about it because as we, you know, prep for this, I mean, that was kind of like, I kind of grasped at it. For some reason, I wasn't really sure why. And I started to really kind of think about it in the last couple of days in, in preparation for this. And I, what I realized was it is the most different from the not only just the rest of the book, but the rest of man's entire, you know, sort of, I'll say filmography, because that's all we, the, other, the other thing we have. But, and the main reason is like, I kind of feel like it, it almost teases the idea of a Michael Mann Western. Yes. You know, like yes. you don't, it is the only section in both the book and in the rest of his sort of uh, filmography that takes place in like a desert setting, right? Takes place out in an, out in a non-urban environment. And I would argue that, that um, Last of the Mohicans despite the fact that it takes place in the wilderness, it's still sort of an urban version of the wilderness, right? You've got trees, you've got canyons, you've got the ledges, which are like the edges of the buildings. Like it's all very, there's a lot of structure there. But like in Mexico, on the Mexican border, especially down in Arizona and just over the border, you, yeah, there's urban areas, right? That's where they, where they arrest the guys. But you, you see, especially the, the climax of this chapter taking place in that barren, you know, um, desert wasteland um, is just a visual that I've never seen before in a Michael Mann film. Um, still haven't seen it in a Michael Mann film, but, you know, once this goes to, you know, <laughs> starts rolling, you'll get to see it. But it just set it up for like sort of a, a, a very different setting than the, the rest, not just the rest of the book, but the rest of anything Michael's ever done. And, you know, you just haven't seen him do something with that kind of texture to it. And I think that was kind of really cool about it, you know, and really exciting. Cause you take these guys that sort of have always existed, you know, yeah, in, synonymous you know very, with the, the synonymous with the urban landscape. That's yeah. You know, cool like, colors, urban. And you've got this, like the heat of Mexico, long stretches of highway, the sort of golden amber desert, you know, sun. It's just a really, really cool setting. I mean, that was kind of primarily, it just felt, it's as if you, you know, if you looked at this book as like color, right? You felt yeah. like the first two chapters and the last two, uh, not first two, but whatever, first two chapters and the first part and the last part are kind of this cool blue, greens, grays, blacks, whatever. And then right smack in the middle, you've got bright orange, you know? Yeah. And and I think that kind of, that stuck with me, not only as a visualist, but as a, as a, as a fan of man to sort of go, oh man, okay, like let's take these characters and put them in that kind of environment. That's really different. That's something, something unique. And you go from cool blue and Sierra del Este from what we've already seen in man's filmography is just yeah. this hugely eclectic color palette of both ethnicities and wardrobe and buildings. And then it's all like shrouded and kind of being encroached upon by jungle. It's like, it's got yeah. all those like this vibrance. And then here, and it's so cool that you say that this is why you were drawn to it, particularly because I'm like, there's two things I immediately think about it. I like, I think of this as Cormac country, you know, that's mm -hmm. a, a phrase that I've personally coined. It's like, this is Cormac country. This is like, anytime you read a Cormac McCarthy novel and this like Tex-Mex, you know, these violent Tex-Mex movies that we're so attracted to and that have been based on all of his terrific novels. I'm like, this is that kind of country. It gets me really excited. And then the other thing, and you would know this and real man heads know this, like one of man's favorite movies ever and i think still is on his sight and sound list 
is My Darling Clementine by John Ford. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's got a homestead. There's this. I'm like, this is the My Darling Clementine, finally, yeah. that we yeah. never got finally to see. Finally gets to do it. We finally, we, yeah, he found a way that he could visually, aesthetically, you know, romantically feel this, you know, it, it's the biggest part of uh, Neil and Elise's romance or Eliza's romance. And so you have this whole sequence and that's what I kept thinking. I'm like, oh my God, this is like, this could get 40 in and then the cat Neil and the crew in a Canyon gunfight. I'm like, this is the okay corral. Like this is, oh, this yeah. is as good as it gets. It's I mean the wild bunch. Yes. Know? It's like, yes. it's it. I mean, you take that and you go, God, <laughs> like man needs to do a Western like for sure. Yes. You know? And, and so that, yeah, it's like, it was an aesthetic thing, which is ironic because the book is so lacking in the aesthetic, you know, yeah. it's, it's pure writing. Um, but I think that was, yeah, that that was what initially attracted me to to it and made it stand out. It made it really distinct for me um, in reading it. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, you know, um, it's it's also like the soul, the whole like, um, I don't know if there's a best term for it, but it's like that whole romantic fatalism. Yes. You know, that exists in a way uh, in this section that's not in the other ones, specifically because especially anything post he macaulay's not there you know so you get this little touch of of you know I, I, like the the relationship with edie and heat is like it's there but it's always kind of like it's distanced right like you don't and it's because he's creating keeping distance there right he's you still know? got but his like, guard up he's still got his guard yeah, up. he's still he's got not... his guard up but this is him unguarded um, yeah you know, this Walk, is him walking into 100 percent in yeah walking into a house and like lovingly embracing his partner and talking about stuff and like talking about work you know yeah yeah exactly <laughs> like the velvets exactly. and hannah you gotta share me with all the yeah. bad people you know like like you know eliza's like in you know she's a mob wife you know in that yeah. um and you know in sport i don't know if they call it this in america but it must be i think it's an, a uk slash aussie thing they call them wags like that's the nickname of the wives and girlfriends of players whether you play cricket or football or you know, rugby league or whatever it is. They're like, oh, wags, wives and girlfriends. And I'm like, that's that whole amazing crew, like Elaine and Charlene and Edie unwittingly yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah. is, uh, is, and Anna, like they're like, they, all, all those three women, especially Elaine, Anna and Charlene all know exactly what their partners do for a living. And yeah. so Neil never having that and then trying to sort of manufacture it, but it's all sort of tenuously built on a lie because at that stage, he's not, willing to completely open himself up here right. it's so interesting because, because she's a civilian yeah she's quote, a civilian right? yeah so he comes yeah. in and you know eliza's like oh yeah you know running people across the border safe houses family my daughter this that like she, she and tied in with nate's wider network you know it's it's all very interconnected and it's um i i found that so interesting and then once you get that sort of more harmonious family life it then gets into like you know the real man stuff of like rolling you know casing a joint rolling tires down the road seeing response times the boys yeah. the boys standing in these alternating positions at different places to to make sure that they're covering looking out for this that and and then building building this entire thing and it, it also even though it's so classic, it also is informed by this Kelso subplot, which is so cool to see Kelso in 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 this. 
the first time we see him again um yeah but talking about like discovering like rudimentary tracking to figure out that there's money laundering going on and then like fixing this score so that they can make they can make big on it yeah exactly and kind of just circling back to what you said the other thing that is really appealing to me about this section is that is it a light elisa is kind of what we're going for a lie elisa eliza elisa i've said i've said it a few times because like i was always like it's eliza and then someone said elisa and i'm like oh maybe there's a more so there's no z but yeah yeah let's say elisa 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 yeah Elisa. Anyway, but uh, uh, Elisa, you know, she's like a really great character in this. You know, um, yes. Edie's sort of like in Heat. Edie's like, you know, she's a graphic designer. She's not in this world. She kind of gets pulled along. And there's there is a an element of that movie where when Neil runs off, you're like, that's probably the best thing that could happen to her because oh my god, I don't know if she would be able to pull off the life that they would have to live. You know, if he was escaping. Um, but in this, I just love that. Uh, Elisa is all in and not only is she all in but she has her own agency like she has a daughter she's making a choice to be with Neil but she like you know she talks about how her family like you know takes the coyote you know took the took the people across like she knows all these borderlands she knows the tunnels like you know he later says I never should have brought you into this you were never a part of it you know you're not a part of my crew but she's like you know she was I mean she has so much knowledge about probably more knowledge than this crew but she has so much knowledge about that this area um and her skill set is so um i mean she's a pro yeah. you know in that way and i think like seeing that character you know that's not um because even like charlene is kind of just a wife you know and and you know Edie's just kind of the girlfriend right but like elisa's like that so there's that love affair there's like the passion with neil but she is all in and she comes to that relationship and that sort of, um, you know, both the romantic relationship and the sort of like crew heist relationship with her own agency and her own skill set, you know, which is really kind of cool. And the way that she, you know, she's just not, you know, spoiler if you haven't seen it but, or read it, but like, you know, she gets taken hostage, but she is not just like a hostage. You know, she is actively undermining, uh, you know, uh, Wardell and actively undermining all that and has the skill set to do it. I think that like that to me was one of the coolest parts because one, it was new, right? You have an understanding that Neil knows what he's doing and Chris and those guys really know what they're doing, yeah. but to have her come in and sort of be a part of an active participant in this, I thought was, was really different, you know, and sort of what I, what part of you is waiting to have Michael do. Right. Like yes. in, in one of his movies where like the women are definitely not bystanders, but you want almost you want to have someone come. You want to I'd like to see a woman in his film that is, you know, basically operating in the same world as as one of the men. And what's so underrated about Elisa is that she's so good at what she does and the help that she gives Neil and the crew that they don't get caught by the cartels it's right. only the purest of coincidences that wardell the, the thing they couldn't have planned for the unplannable thing that this psychopath takes a personal vendetta against neil and his crew because of they have nothing to do with him getting taken down um in essence but they 
he, he takes it as like a personal slide as a loose end that he didn't have control of much like neil takes wango as a personal slide it's like there's a bit of echoing there but she yeah. helps them get away from the cartels like they yeah. take down this huge score and they're fine except yeah, they're out they're, they're out. out they've just done a massive like almost bank heist level score against the cartels with that will never be reported to the police right <laughs> what is it get, 12 it's like 12 13 million yeah they again, walk away with like about 12 million because then yeah. um uh then wardell takes two or three yeah, yeah. two to three because he takes one of their one one segment of it um whatever was in neil's car and yeah so it's I'm like, she helped them get away from the cartel. If there's anything about her capability as a as an organizer for safe houses and safe passage through this region, it's like the, the cartel didn't chase them. She, yeah. She covered their butt. So that, they was, went to, that was good. They perfect. were good to go. They were good to yeah. go. It's only when someone drives around every street in Arizona <laughs> looking yeah. for a car. And goes down the wrong road by <laughs> yeah, chance, by you know, chance. And, and finds it. Yeah. But it's also, you know, and it also with her, she, it's driven by the desire to save her daughter, you know, which I think is also, you know, a great touch, you know, not that you want to see children in jeopardy, but the idea that, you know, it's coming out of a, a motherly love, you know, that again, like, you know, man is, is oftentimes accused of, of making very cool mm. characters, right? Making movies that are very emotionless and very cool. And so it is. You know, and I don't know if this was Man or this was Meg, you know, bringing something into it. But it is, you know, even even like just throwing it out and we can come back to this. But just because I was rewatching Heat in advance of this, too. And I was like, you know, it's just nice to see like the first time you see, you know, Chris and Charlene. It's like they get into an argument, you know, yeah. and it's like so in this book, it's nice to see that the time before that. It's nice to see the time when they were loving to each other and they didn't have this, you know, wall between them and she wasn't cheating on him and. You know, and same with Neil. It's nice to see that he has a, a passion and love affair with the, with the woman. You know, it's nice to see that, right? Kind of, it sets up everything else in a nicer way because once you get going in the movie, it's like everything's not going well. <laughs> yeah, and the, you're, you're so right. It's like, and, and you can also then see, because we talked about it uh, with those characters, it's like, it's nice to see then what, michael and elaine and chris and charlene are reaching for like they're right. looking for the same harmony that elisa was for neil because they can remember like this great wife who's involved who knows what we're doing handles some of the money stuff you know i come home and do that now chris you know um is a gambling junkie so that's a problem and uh you know michael seems to have a pretty great life with the lane she squares away his money he you know he he's he's all invested good. in real estate <laughs> invested in real estate like they're good like you know yeah. cut loose of this um so you see that that's that's all there and the other thing is there's two mother moments i'm so glad you brought it up because i hadn't really made the connection yet but one of the most devastating moments of the early part of the book is as far as trying to protect mm. your family is in the first Wardell home invasion where yeah. he does that. And the mother is in a robe and she just opens her robe. Like she like kind of sacrifices herself, sacrifices yeah. herself to say, take me, but just put like, I know that this is <laughs> going to be violent and 
and, and she's getting the feeling immediately that it's going to be sexual violence. And it's like, but here I'm just going to sacrifice myself, distract myself so that I can save the kids. And obviously Waddell is the meanest of the mean and the yeah. awfulest of the awful. So he's, he takes that as a, you can't manipulate me and, and almost takes it as some kind of insult, which is even more ludicrous in his twisted brain. Well, cause he doesn't, he doesn't want it offered. He no. wants to take it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's their whole MO. That's, but. that's, his, that's his MO. Um, but it's that particular framing there. And and the Eliza and Gabriella's scene is so great because she just starts talking to them. And the whole conversation is not with them. It's with Gabriella to get the hell out of right. the house. Yeah, <laughs> to yeah. hide and be then to disappear. And yeah. it's it's I think it's one of the most beautifully written and scary intense scenes in the book and i love i love it so much because she doesn't even there's not even a blink she just goes into protect mode yeah and that's it she's got to do what she's got to do to make sure that gabriella's okay and she knows how to do it yeah she's got that that skill set to do it um you know to lure them away to get them out of the house to set the trap you know yes. she knows she's gonna be um you know, she's going to, she's going to have to pay for it a little bit along the way. You know, it's not going to be an easy ride, but, but sure. Primary, primary focus is getting them away from her daughter. Right. And then the secondary focus becomes laying the trap so that Neil can take care of them. Yes. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so there's a lot of those elements. And again, I don't know if it was Meg or Michael or where that all came from, but I think like, it's, it's sort of, it's a, it's a different aspect of, of Michael's work in Michael's storytelling, I think, at least based on the movies, to see that kind of type of motherly instinct, to see that type of relationship even that she has with her daughter, because like all we've gotten really is like, you know, okay, um, um, you know, in, in, in uh, Heat, you know, you got Natalie Portman's characters clearly suffering from like, you know, an issue. And, um, you know, and, and the relationship with the mother is not great. And you got the ex you know what I mean? And so there's all that kind of, it's everything's dysfunctional in a lot of this stuff, because often within the confines of a two hour movie, three-hour movie you don't have time to explore it that much unless that's the point of the film right but like here because it's a book you get a lot more of that in there and i think that's it's, it's just nice, a nice touch i think it's, it's expansive nice to, in terms of the world it's nice to see a mother-daughter relationship that is really close and functional even though there's an inherently dysfunctional criminal enterprise that is all <laughs> happening yeah, um, putting that also, aside putting it's a, that aside it's a beautiful but, relationship but then it sets up because it's it's a nice touch in the next part of the book that Vincent is still speaking to Lauren. Yeah. And it's a nice touch that they're having a bit of a a, a burgeoning relationship and they still stay in touch even though, like, you can tell that Justine hates his guts. Like, that's right, just like, right. <laughs> like, Justine absolutely hates his guts in the next segment of the book and it, it, it is what it is. But then it also tees up that Neil has also had a relationship with an ex's girl and has set her up for life, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just another wrinkle that is like, it's so important and it's mentioned, but it's, you never get it. You, you don't get a flashback to Neil taking care of Gabriella and setting her up in LA and checking in on right. her and doing any of that. But it's just implied now, or that's at least how I felt reading it later on. Yeah. And so him watching them establish this relationship and watching everything happen, it was like, oh, this is like another way that these guys are alike. There's another yeah. way that these guys are similar to one another. 
And, you know, that's where the algae comes from, you know, the information on the algae and sitting down and looking at the book. Like it is, it is weird because it all is in this wrapper of criminality and these guys that kill people and, and steal from drug dealers and like, you know, whatever. But there are, there is a humanistic thing to them, you know, and I think that's what makes, you know, I, I think that's what makes Heat overall so much more uh, than just a crime film. Yes. And so much harder for people to have replicated because they get lost in the notion of like, oh, these guys are really good at what they do. And and, you know, but it's all about the score and it's all about the action. And like what what it misses is that he painted this tableau of lives and intersecting relationships and things like that, that are almost a lot more about the moments in between than they are about the actual action. You yes. know, and I think that that's. You know, it showed the lives of cops. It showed the lives of thieves. You know, and it did it under the, in the under this umbrella of this kind of operatic LA storytelling that you just don't get, right? And, and it, I don't know if anybody could do it now. I think that'd be really <laughs> hard to pull off unless you were doing it within the confines of like a, a limited series or something like that. You know, but but people have tried to replicate it, but they can't. But I think it's it's a testament to those kinds of details. You know, you can say that the relationship with Lauren. And which with Justine is, is superfluous to the overall plot, and that might be true, but th it's not always just plot. Yeah, it's not, and it's what he does so well, you know, where he can inject these little details. I hate this phrase, and I know that you would probably hate it too. Is when someone's like, you know, this is our heat. You know, we were just inspired <laughs> by heat. I'm just like, yeah. what? I feel like being a hostage negotiator. And go, why did you say? Why did you do that? Like, what? What are you? Right. Like give them therapy. Like no, don't you, do, you don't, don't put that out there. You don't say that. You you you're allowed to say one thing. Heat is my favorite film, or and I was <laughs> and you're allowed to say that. But if you say this is our heat, all it's going to immediately gauge for anyone who's ever seen Heat is how much do you either a understand it or b flagrantly misunderstand what Heat is about. Right. Because right. the great thing, and it's a, it's a phrase that Michael has popularized, I think, in the last few years, which is like, heat is a human drama first, and it yeah. is an action heist film second. You know, there, there are heists, there are things, there is action, but it's a human drama first. And I feel like that's, you're exactly right. It's like all those things that if you took all these bits out, it would not be the film that we savor now. Like you watch the the Donald Breeden cut in your head. Like you just watch the whole movie waiting for Donald Breeden. And then when his story comes in, you get hyper-focused on the cataclysm of American institutionalization of like African-Americans. Right. And, and you're like watching it just for that. And you can, that's can be a whole viewing. You can watch Chris, you can have a Chris viewing where you're just like watching everything that Chris is doing. It's like, you have these moments where you can watch it. And it's like, no, not many movies have that. It's not just Vincent a plot villains B plot. It's, it's, yeah. it's an interweaving of equally important whoever is in the frame is the most important character in the movie right then and it's not right. just going oh i'm just checking in on this b plot no it's like donald Breeden's the main character of the movie for like 10 minutes you know or like yeah, yeah. you know six minutes and his wife's and, the supporting character and yeah, his wife and she, has one of the more emotional <laughs> moments in the movie yeah it's like that's a, whenever anyone's like oh it's heat i'm like please please don't do that don't do that to yourself yeah as advice yeah. don't say that because it's you know michael mann thought of it had been thinking about making heat from like 1970 to 1995 how many times have you thought about a project for 25 years and even exercise doing a version of it that didn't work on yeah. television 
um, to make the thing that actually does. It's like, it's, it's, it's so, there's so many, so much more that goes into it. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, he had, the, he had the script in the early eighties and said he wouldn't direct it. Yeah. He was like, I'm not going to direct it. You know, I mean, so just the fact that it's gestating, gestating that long. Yeah. And then you also go, what's interesting about the book is the way that the book just has now become not only an amalgam of all the research that he had done up to doing heat, but now you see, I mean, you know, all of the research he's done post heat in terms of like the work he did on Black Hat, Miami Vice, like all that stuff that he's now brought back into it. I, I, part of me wishes he had not set the Chris stuff in Ciudad de L.S. Day because I feel like we've seen it. Yes. Um, you know, I was like, okay, we've done that. I mean, maybe not to the degree, a huge degree in Miami Vice, but as a fan, I go, oh, I'm already deep into that world, you know. But I'm so um, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think I've I think I cracked only just after recording all of our Heat Two Book Club episodes. I'm like, oh, it's this is the evidence that Miami Vice was meant to have a big Ciudad del Este finale. Yeah. Yeah. And this is all the stuff. Yeah. never got it never were able to happen this is like the ending of miami vice you know casinos and infiltration right, right. Yeah, and yeah. all this stuff it's like this is like oh a potential showdown would have happened like this and gunfights yeah. through the streets and those sorts of things it's like oh this is kind of some of that stuff that we've ne we never got to see but yeah i yeah i i agree that, that that's the relief you know I, I i love all the individual chris stuff and that whole new lens on the world it's like modern man meets classic man in in one chapter um but this being something new is a really nice way to come out of it and propel you into you know the fifth part is the shortest it's just the tiny checking on chris momentarily yeah. um to to set up the chris that we're going to meet in in the year 2000 and in the last part of the book um but this is like a nice different wholly different vignette into this world um than i think any other part of the book yeah and i do like you know one of the things i do enjoy about the book and and that you that can only be hinted at in the form of a film is just the the sort of expansive world in which it's set you know like man really loves in movies he loves sort of in movies you have to infer it through either your character or your your action somehow right like how you're setting it because you can't you don't want to be a documentary right but the way in which with the book where you expand into you know this whole transnational you know uh world and and sort of the economics of of crime and economics of how all that's changed i mean it, it's a it is weird because it is a little bit of that scene in like <laughs> public enemies when dillinger goes in and he sees yes. all the betting wires and he's just like you know what do you get how much do you make when you take a score you know, he's like, what, uh, whatever it is, 10,000, you know, it's like, we make that every single day, day after day after day. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, like that, that's almost what this book does. It almost yeah. takes these small little house uh, burglaries and these, ha you know, these, these, these types of small takes and even 12 million is almost nothing. And it expands it out via Chris into this much, much bigger, much, much larger world of sort of transnational crime syndicates and the way that the world has completely changed. And it's like, oh, you were a bank robber? Like, that's kind of quaint. You know, <laughs> here's here's what we're doing, and we're taking money in the billions, you know? And the book, I think, really does that well. What I really love about the the, the Mexicali piece is that it just is a good old-fashioned heist. Yeah. You know, it just, it brings it, it, it is those original elements that do make heist films so great, is that it really is this, it's, it's uh, I think it's 88, um, but it's like 1988, you know, 
They, the technology is like radios at most, you know, maybe some video surveillance, but that's basically it. It's very old school. Closed circuit TV. Yeah, closed circuit TV. You know, they're rolling tires into a parking (laughs) lot to gauge the police response. Very low tech, but there's something exciting about that. And a stopwatch. Yeah, but you you read it. This is the thing I have to ask you because this is my kind of, you know, uh, only what I can theorize having not made a film, but I just look at this and I... I feel like so much of it, and I imagine you would too, having read so many scripts, written scripts, looking at uh, this, doesn't it just feel like so much of it is just like scene instructions? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like, I feel like you were reading this going, oh yeah, I know what would melt away instantly. Like these 25 right. oh, pages yeah. would just melt and it would be three shots and then it would be the character beat you know like i i feel like that's when i especially now reading it a few times i think you know i probably overall read it like now three or four times um because of reading sections and getting prepped for the show um and reading a few sections over and again because i I enjoy them but i just so many bits i'm like oh this is just going to be like this is going to be like a two-minute establishing shot of chris getting out of his apartment like we're not going to hear a peep out of you know he's in a monologue we're not going to do this it's going to be an actor he's going to be burdened to know that this is their homework and plus plus whatever else michael's already got them prepared for and then you know it'll be three or four great shots a beautiful montage sequence and then we're in the world of you know um uh sierra del este and then similarly here it's like there's a lot of description about what the guys are doing but it's like uh, we're not going to hear any of that we're just going to see there's torito we're going to get oriented in the scene there's torito there's the hotel there's chris that, you know, he, here's the building. There's Neil popping out of a hole in the building. There's Neil holding up a cam- you know, a telephoto lens. There he takes a shot. There's, you know, there's yeah. um, Danny rolling the the tire in and and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, this is this is the kind of nuts and bolts of really great man storytelling that you can just see. You know, it was almost like it was a script, and then he built the story around it to make it a yeah. novel. Yeah, right. And it that may be true. You know, the other thing that I'm glad you brought that up because my other sort of the other way I've kind of looked at this book, which it's going to come off like a criticism, which I guess it sort of is, but I really enjoyed it. So I have no no problem with it. But like the the book, the book heat two is just pure story. Yes, it's pure story. But the fact that we know it's from Michael Mann, it doesn't totally feel complete. It doesn't feel like it's a whole package. And I think the reason for that is that what you miss from this is Michael's aesthetics. Yes. You miss his visuals and you miss like the way he uses music and the way he, because like when, when you watch a Michael Mann movie, like there's so much, and it's what makes them so great and makes them endlessly watchable. I think for people that really get into it is like, there is so much depth and subtext built into each individual frame it's it's two pages of description in the book that he is injected into a single frame of the film yes and some audiences will pick up on it and some of them won't but it is there and it's there for you to pick apart and look at and examine uh if you want to but in a book you don't have that in the book you either have to describe it right which removes this it moves it immediately into the foreground it moves it, you know, in, in a way from the subtextual element of it. Um, or you don't do it at all, in which case then it's missing. 
Yes. But in a film, it's weird because you you are not necessarily, into, you know, for Michael, like, you know, as much as he can paint a frame, there are things that just happen. They just occur. Right. They exist because he's looking at this particular street and there happens to be this building in the background. Now, we do know that Michael will bring in, you know, big uh, uh, fresco images and put them onto a, you know, a brick wall and he'll have those painted. But the brick wall is also already there. You know, yes. so so there's this element of like uh, sort of, you know, what I imagine is sort of an, operating in him is very conscious um, positioning of elements in the film so that they they exist. But also a lot of sort of unconscious things that occur just based on his own research and his own process of shooting things. Things happen somewhat accidentally sometimes in movies. He might make use of them, um, but. He may not have intended to do it when he was shooting a book. You have to be very like uh, intentional when you're putting uh, writing a book. Yes. You know, like I remember back in high school, you know, we'd sit through all these English classes and and these authors, you know, these uh, the English teachers would talk about like, oh, this subtext and this da 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 da. I'm like, well, you know, but the authors all intentionally put that in there. There's no accident in a book. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you really have to like be pretty. In, you have to be conscious of what you're doing. Uh, I think. Whereas in a movie, I think things can be um, a little bit more by chance, you know? They can be yeah. sort of like, they can, they can um, how you frame something, I, I guess, I don't know if I'm being clear. I, I, know, I, know, like, I know what you're being clear. I'll give you the perfect example. It's And this is yeah. what we've recently learned doing a collateral confession with Katie and I and Justin Lieberman, who is a filmmaker and, and um, a, a commercial director and someone who worked in the forward pass offices. There was a moment where by fluke vincent is walking into one of his first apartment kills in mm. collateral and in the background for a, a frame an airplane went through the frame and it just informed that kind of swarm of travel of los angeles at the night transitory just, nature of the transitory of nature LA. of him and la and just echoed something and he he found this inspiration and they kept doing it and Tom Cruise went up to Michael and was like, oh, am I not, what's happening? Am I not, am I not getting it? And he, and he took him to the edit, uh, took him to like the video village and sat him down and goes, see this shot. We kind of half got it on one. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm just trying to wait for the planes, the air traffic to cue you. Cause I just found this inspiration. He can't make a call. Michael can't just make a call to LAX. You're funny. Tom made a call and had his plane <laughs> flying laps past the hotel until they got really? it until they got it wow right? yeah. that's like talk about a marriage of two brains that i think need oh to yeah make more movies together those two um but exactly so in the book version you would go oh behind vincent a plane flies by part. yes uh, you know suggesting the transitory like whatever i mean that's the terrible terrible version of it but you know i think that like you know what miss what's missing from the book for me is just that 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 ultimately makes man's work so compelling is his aesthetic yes you know his use of visuals his use of sound his use of um music you know to to inform that emotional response to what you're watching i was just recently again i, I went back and watched heat and there's the scene where um edie and, and neil meet in the coffee shop yes and I, I don't know why I hadn't heard this before. Maybe I hadn't turned it up enough, but the there's a mute the music that's playing when she first asks him about the book 
is the same music that's used. It's like not a. It's I'd have to find the name of it, but it's like it's like a pulsating like bum bum bum. It but it's like it's the same music that's used in the Insider when um, when uh, uh, Jeffrey Wigand comes home and he sees the uh, personal security outside and he thinks somebody's sneaking around his house. It's this. It's a it's a cue that Michael reuses in in movies. He reuses a lot of these cues. Like you'll you'll find them in all of his. The films. Lisa Gerrard's. He loves the Lisa Gerrard stuff. Like there's a whole period. Yeah. He finds her in heat, and and she's all through a bunch of his. It's movies. um, and what's really interesting, and I never heard that before, but like I suddenly go, oh, like that's that's underscoring this this threat that he feels by this this woman who's asking him about this book that he doesn't know. He's wondering who she is, and then. And then what's interesting is that kind of dies off, like as he as she kind of admits, oh, I just work in the store or whatever. And then when that dies off, there's a beat and then something else comes in and you you come into that steel. I think it's like a steel cello yes. that um, starts playing as they as they then, it then goes to the roof. And it's just a really the song's called like, Steel um, Cello Lament. Steel Cello Lament. That's it. And then, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but I was just like, oh, like I hadn't even picked up on that before. And it's like, that's that little stuff that sort of collectively is a package. That's all these words on the page in the book, you know, that is not, um, that is being sort of translated into the visual and, and psychological elements of, of what man is doing um, as a filmmaker, right? Mm. And so that's the part that's missing to me in the book. That's the part, like, for example, like, you know, reading a book, what's great is you, you get your own movie in your head. I'm like, I don't want my movie. I want <laughs> Michael's movie. You know, I want to hear and, Michael's, and that, Michael's. That's the only benefit that we have yeah. is that like people who read the book and I'm like, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm having this weird, it's now like when I watch heat, I watch heat and I'm, I've got like a schizophrenic chorus of voices of one heat minute conversations that happen through every scene. They're just right. happening subliminally in my head. No one else can hear it except me. And I'm watching the movie and I can hear these people like, like this most lively commentary track of things that is happening in my head that are making me even further appreciate my favorite film. And right. so I, I watch it like that. But when I read the book, I just... I have like a mini projector in my head of like the Michael Mann universe just folding out in my brain. <laughs> like I can't, I can't read Chicago 1988. The, the Mann cinematic see. universe. Yeah. I'm like, I've got yeah. splashes of Manhunter. I've got mostly, you know, thief. And then um, the Mexicali part is un wholly unique, but then you, you, I've got like, okay, I've got flashes of black hat in, you know, in, in Paraguay. And then I've got a lot, big chunks of Miami vice. And then I come back, to like later period LA. And I'm like, well, that it's a familiar Los Angeles, but it's also a little bit unfamiliar Los Angeles. So you can like sort of paint the way that it viewed, but like, you're exactly right. If you look, and I say this a lot with no slight to the script of Miami Vice, but I'm like, if you gave Miami Vice the script to someone to film as it exists today, it's not the same. Right. It's not even close. Oh, no. No. It's not even close. I it's a, probably a trashy movie. And it's yeah. like some people might say, even say that it's a trashy movie, but I'm like, no, the aesthetic choices, he's painting with the lens and the, the time manipulation and the score and the way that scenes blend or merge together or don't and tones merge together or don't um, and aesthetics merge together or don't like just everything that he could conveys in the frame and how it all comes together is so unique. And that's why it's yeah. like thrilling to be like, okay, 
is it going to be even close to what I imagined? And I almost hope that it's not. I hope that it's yeah, yeah. completely different, especially yeah. for the part that we're discussing, because it's like, he's got a whole new, he's got a whole new setting to play in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. Cause like on, you know, when I have been having conversations with my, my cinematographer about the project we're working on and sort of what I'm trying to go for is like, I describe, um, you know, when I talk about aesthetic and talk about looking at things differently and trying to find something unique in there in terms of our approach, the, a great example where you say Miami Vice and somebody else's hand is I compare, I, 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 and I think they're two great movies, but two very different aesthetically is The Insider and Spotlight. Yes. Right. Spotlight is like, they're the same movie. It's an investigative journalistic movie, right? Like for the most part, it's about the same things, you know? And so, but what's interesting is like, um, meaning that the, the the propulsion of the plot is about the investigation of, of these stories and spotlight spotlight is very simply shot i mean yeah. a lot of just still masters very few cuts you know like just everything's shot on a, on a dolly or a tripod very very simple whereas like we we know that the insider is not that you no. know and so that those are the very that's a very um opposite ends of the spectrum but though that's a very easy comparison because they're roughly about the same subject but they are executed in a completely different way and that's what makes even you know, the difference between so spotlight, even the difference between spotlight and presidents which i think is it's right. gold, north star it's like but presidents makes you feel things yeah 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 aesthetically right. like spotlight's almost too distanced it's, it's two a, step it, back from it's it. it's a bit objective yeah that's i mean look that's I really enjoy Spotlight and I don't want to, um, there's no slide on Spotlight, but it's the, it's just like, there's another, there's an extra level of mastery that just comes with, even though you're doing simple shots, it's inferences, it's slight pauses, it's the camera almost like staring to the corner of the frame, like someone like else lingering, lingering yeah. in a spot that it shouldn't or making yeah. a choice to suddenly after a very static two shot to go to this weird protracted, like, you know, like surveillance shot and yeah, just yeah. little tiny, the most deliberate of tiny decisions. Um, but yeah, the insider is the perfect example. It's like, um, even just a conversation in the insider where Wygand is sitting across from his bosses where they're saying to him, you know, you can't breach confidentiality and he yeah. loses his temper. Um, one of the many times that Jeffrey Wygand loses his temper in that movie, but that scene is like, insanely shot like weed oh yeah shied, like well they do yeah so what they do in things, that, it's yeah. crazy so what's what's interesting is and again we, you and i should just do our own podcast on the insider because <laughs> i could go on for, for 180 episodes if you want um but like you know a great example because like man what he does is like initially when he sits down you've got wygand i believe he's 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 shooting over wygand's shoulder wygand is on the right side of the frame and uh the, his boss is on the left side of the frame right and initially it's sort of like kind of friendly not really but then when there's this like there's when the i think it's when the threat happens about the yes. family the the camera dollies and all of a sudden now wygan's on the other side and his boss is on right so all of a sudden there's a shift and in the background behind wygan of just feet and shoes yeah, yeah. And then they use a split diopter in order to put both <laughs> yeah. Wygan and his boss in focus, which is is really interesting. But yeah, the, and 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 that's what I always that's why it just gets me so juiced about Michael Mann because he does stuff like that and he does it as a way of sort of underlining the psychological 
you know, what's going on psychologically in the screen. He's mm -hmm. doing what paragraphs of description and, and inner dialogue does in books. He's doing that visually and he's doing it in a way that's not, you know, uh, in your face. It's there if you want it, but it is there. And if you're watching it, 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 it hits you in a way that you might not, audiences might not even be fully aware of how it's hitting. They know there's something there. And that's what always gets me so exciting because it also it's just layers and layers and layers of like, you know, visual subtext and and how he's approaching things that that you could just continue to unpack. I mean, a little, you know, a great example when you're talking about the little like stuff that he'll do, like in the in the in the um, in heat during that first initial robbery, when the truck has hit the um, armored car and the armored flipped over its side, it's pushed up against those cars. And then the music kind of crescendos. Or no, it doesn't crescendo. It's like you've got this blast of noise and glass and pavement scraping and all this stuff. And then it just goes quiet for a second. And they cut to that slightly wider shot where you see the blue ribbon. Yeah, the blue the blue tinsel just comes just, down. Yeah, just tinsel. And it just, he lets it kind of come in and then land. And then boom, they're out, <laughs> you know, with the guns going after it. And it's like, it's those little rhythmic details. And it's those little things where, again, I go, I guarantee, like, I can't guarantee it. 95 percent guarantee that man did not intentionally work through what the blue ribbon was no he do. found it but he found it he, he and he found was like, it and and now we're gonna do must, that until we get it right now it must now be we have there. to get it or he gets it on the cart because you gonna you've obviously been on a film set but like quiet on the set they do the big yeah. crash and there's just the pause where everyone exhales yeah and he probably found it in the edit and was like or one of the editors had four editors um on right, that film exactly found it and goes oh what about this and he goes oh yeah, yeah. we're keeping that because that's like right. the exhale exactly of like this huge massive accident we spent just 13 minutes winding up to that moment like we're, yeah. we're fired up it's like oh, yeah whoa here we are like, like hey we'll take a breath we'll take a breath here before we then keep going in and i i, I wouldn't be surprised i mean i I know that I try, you know, you, when you look at a film you're working on, you do try and find those peaks and those valleys and how, how is it flowing rhythmically? And I'm sure he does that as well, you know, in terms of like looking at the overall sort of um, story, you know, the overall uh, progression that he's doing, you have to have these moments of sort of lull and, and heights and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, with the amount of, I mean, he gets like, you know, a year to edit movies. So I'm sure he's looking at that in every which way. But all this stuff that we're talking about that's also exciting, that's the half of the of the thing that's not in the book, you yes. know, and why I think like it'd be curious to see what he eventually does. You know, I've heard some of the other guests talk about like, oh, I don't you know, do we want to see younger versions of, of Pacino? Do you recast whatever? I mean, one of my questions, I'm curious to what you think is like, is it do you think this is possible to stand on its own separated from the movie that is heat like for people that have never seen heat and they go see this can it exist as its own story or is it like inextricably linked to its its original source material like i think the answer is both it's inextricably linked but i think there's great ways that you can there's great ways that you can i feel immediately get an audience to to appreciate it and one of the tricks and i think it would be a good trick is there's a prologue in this book for a reason i just feel like yeah. there, there, there could be a an extended kind of montage moment if you like where man gets to slightly do different takes on some of the heat material and do slightly different shots and play uh, around like the beginning of uh like the beginning of ollie Yes. You did sort and of the beginning of Ollie. You get a, yeah, like you, you get the world, all these different 
angles, different shots, different compositions of the same landscape, different moments that we maybe didn't see, where the actors who are going to play these characters get to make their, like, almost commercial for Heat, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I feel like if you just did that, people could just go, this is just the way, like, oh, this is just the same characters, we're just going to move in to this new world and you would get into the cadence quite quickly. But... um I think that there's always going to be that thing that weds it to it, but it's, it's, I just feel like you would garner so much, um, you would garner so much like goodwill from an audience to not like go and recreate or like just simply pluck stuff from the old movie. I feel like it's like, there would have to be like a little tactical mini shoot, like on your schedule where you're just going to go, what are the key three or four scenes? or five scenes that I need to pick up. You know, Saheed had like a hundred and something locations now. Yeah. But like go and pick some locations, do some pickup shots with these different actors in these roles. Like right. maybe it's Chris just after he gets the plastic explosive and maybe it's like Treo driving through the streets of LA and just like little moments where they're wearing all the same stuff and he's driving a Camaro and like Breeden taking out yeah, the trash. Yeah. You know, just simple things like where it's like boom, 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 just like reorienting all the characters and then you know another couple of angles from like staging of the heist is uh, you yeah, know, yeah and and then and then at the airport a couple of different angles of different things right to, right like to do that and final then, final image that, and that, like you know that final yeah. that final vista where you just flip it where the camera's yeah. on vincent's face and it's neil's yeah, yeah. hand and then we start the movie and i feel like yeah. if you just did that within five to ten minutes i would be so a hundred percent all in that i would do a backflip <laughs> You know, yeah. like I just like yeah. it would just that's what it would be like. I'd just go whoo, like back with my seat. Woo. Yeah. Like just like yeah, go crazy. Just, all right. You set us up. We're good to go. You yeah, know? we're good I'm to sorry. go. And then after that, I, you've I got buy it. I buy into it. I buy into it. I'm buying into it. But it feels like that addresses the elephant in the room. Yeah, Josh, exactly. this has been Josh has been an absolute pleasure talking to you, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time out of pre-production of, uh, of a new <laughs> film um, to come and wax lyrical on uh, on Heat 2. And, and thank you for diving into this segment. And uh, it's such a, such a treat to talk to you. And thanks for all your insights, especially filmmaking insights into like how, how to approach this thing because uh, um, it's, it's always fascinating to talk to you. So yeah, just thank you so much for your time again. And it's a, a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Love being part of the family and uh, and always enjoy talking about this kind of stuff. So anytime. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This wouldn't be on One Heat Minute Productions if I didn't talk to my favorite partner in crime, wearing right now, ladies and gentlemen, what you can't see, but I can see, which is our totally sweet merch. I'm a fiend for mojitos. It's my favorite thirsty fan of Henry, Roll <laughs> Henry Rollins' thighs and his legs in shorts. It's Katie Walsh. 
Hello, yes. If I'm known for anything, it is getting people to Google Henry Rollins shorts. <laughs> uh, I remember it fondly, and it was I'm really, literally, it was like, you know that moment in Rambo where he like cauterizes the wound like in the forest, like, it, you know, like self-surgery. I was like, immediately, I was like, I found Katie, and I'm like, this is, this is my kind of person i my really partner, yes. this is my partner like <laughs> the friendship was fused like that was, like immediately um but thank many you many years so ago man it feels we have feels been, like yesterday <laughs> we've been so in this world together we're having such a blast um this heat novel you and i have talked about off and on air for a long time mm -hmm. so getting started just really quickly what were your impressions? Did you have trepidations going into the novel or were you kind of like, I just need to stop the noise around me and consume it and actually take it at face value? Like how, what, because I know we've talked a little bit about it, but like, what was your first impressions coming to the novel? I didn't have a lot of trepidation. I think I was just sort of curious and excited to see what, I mean, I think I just like didn't have as many expectations around it as other people did. Like, or I, I, I put less pressure on, on myself or on the book. I was just sort of like, cool, yeah, like, yeah, I'll check it out. But I wasn't super nervous about it. Um, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but I listened to the audiobook. Yes. And I also have the paper version, but I mainly consumed the audiobook. And I just want to take this opportunity to shout out Peter Giles, the reader <laughs> of the audiobook, because he. I think he should get the audiobook Oscar <laughs> performance. And if you haven't listened to it, like, please listen to it. He does an amazing Vincent Hanna and an amazing Neil, but they're not cartoonish impressions. They're so subtle. Um, it's, you just kind of hear a hint of Neil or you kind of hear, you know, his Hanna is a little bit broader, but it's just like, it, it just sucks you into this world. It's just this like beautifully, you like expressive rich world with this one man i kind of laughed a little bit when he first started because it's so gravelly it's like christian bale <laughs> batman it's like heat too by michael man and you're like this is a joke but then i really got into it and he it's just so good i also like listened to it on a i listened to the majority of the book on like a really like a six hour road trip up north and then back down to LA. So you just get so immersed into it. And I also made my parents listen to it because they were driving with me and they got really into it. And they just like jumped into the book in the middle of the audio book and they had never seen Heat before. And like, they got really into it. Heat 2, a novel by Michael Mann and Meg Gardner. Read by Peter Giles. Vincent Hanna paces beside the plate glass Scanning the room, surf outside beats a drum roll against the sand. The ocean is dark cobalt. The tops of low cumuli catch threaded gold, like braid on a dress uniform. Sunrise, 6 a.m. The house is empty. Neil Macaulay lived here. He is not coming back. Hannah's here because he wants this place to tell him things. He wants Macaulay to speak to him again. It hasn't been six hours since he fired the three rounds that took Macaulay down. He took Macaulay's hand through the paroxysms that carried him into death. They understood each other. 
as if they were the only two people on the planet. Alone, isolated within who they were, but only they knew how it all really works. Your family's journey. <laughs> yes, the chaotic the, heat journey. <laughs> the chaotic Michael Mann journey of your family. Honestly, so I got a galley's edition of this book when I was in New York, which I was really grateful for because we got it early and, you know, approached it with caution, me as you would expect. But then I obviously bought the, the hardcover novel but it was only Katie's tweets that got me to buy the audiobook. It was like literally <laughs> reading Katie's tweets. I think it pit stops along that six hour journey and then talking about her parents and then us catching up after. I was like, okay, I must get it. So, you know, without, um, we'll definitely, as you would imagine, people right now are going to be hearing little bits of that. Um, I'll find some good snippets to play in the show. But so you, we, we're coming to this, which I, I'm really excited to talk to you about because we have been chronicling modern man and this is so much a, a absolutely a fusion of the sensibilities of heat when it comes to modernity in this scene like you know there's I think there's like sort of throwback scenes and then there's a sort of classic scenes but for us to go back and dive into what is ultimately kind of this absolutely epic sister scene to the the shootout of at the centerpiece of heat and to come back into, into Mexicali and have this like double shootout, like this okay corral Canyon climax. And then this absolutely insane, beautiful scene of like taking down a cartel hotel in the middle of this book. I, I, I love that we are here together at this part of the novel because it's, it's like one of those great balances. I think it's one of the, best chapters that's structured because it really orients you in the scene it really is slow it takes you through every agonizing detail so that when you get to the action it is just bang bang it is unrelenting so i'm really excited take me to the u.s mexican border in 1988 what what were the things of this chapter that you like that really resonated with you because we come here after war dell has escaped He's found out about Neil McCauley. He kind of generally knows where he's going based on taking out his, uh, his you know, uh, vehicle and equipment supplier in Chicago. We're coming down here. It's so much familiar territory with, you know, different people from heat. But tell me about this as you're, uh, uh, as you're approaching it. I mean, I would say my, my, my overall feeling about this part is, it is the most gut-wrenching part of the book for me. Yes. The end of it with Elisa and Neil. I, I was I distinctly remembered I was driving into Santa Cruz and I was the end of the, the chapter was happening and I, my heart was breaking. Like I was it was so gut-wrenching. And I, I just remember saying to my dad a couple times, like, this is heart-wrenching. Like, <laughs> I I can't handle this. It was so sad. And it is interesting, you know, you mentioned all the process stuff, like all the geography that's laid out so carefully. I think listening to an audiobook style, I just sort of zoned out all that stuff. Like I was like, I don't know where this is, like <laughs> what's going on. And there's a lot, there's like a lot of geography in yeah. the middle of the chapter. That that it let's just be clear, if we were ever watching this at a movie, would all melt away. We would yeah, just see exactly. scenes unfold. It's like you see the bank heist is like where the hell do these guys go they dumped us they dumped us you know that great you know iconic scene from heat 
and then you see Treo in a car and then you see Chris cutting through concrete and then you see Michael go up there with a circuit board that Kelso's built to like put the alarm back in on itself. Like that's like, you don't have to, we would never have to read it. it these are right. like the notes of how you would assemble the scene. And I think for me, I just, I, I went into this like flow state of, I'm like, okay, this is just the directing instructions. Right. It's and like then, the production design. This is the production design meeting that I get to sit in. And now right. I'm, I, and then when the action starts, especially towards the end of the chapter, I'm like, oh, this is, th then it just, it just unleashes. It just goes, right. goes, 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 goes. Right. And also rereading it this time to prep for the pod. Like I love the scene where they're, you know, they're doing their recon and then Sharito rolls the uh, tire into the pool to see what the police response time is. Like, that's just a fun little yes. kind of improvisation. Like, like these guys know what they're doing and they're just kind of using the environment around them to like test timing and things. It just like goes into, I, it, this is such a Neil part. I mean, obviously yes. this is the Neil or Neil chapter because it, um, it's so process oriented and he is such a process oriented guy. And then, um, and also, but also we're getting probably the most we've ever gotten about his childhood. And then also his heartbreak, which informs his relationship with Edie and who he is in the movie Heat. Um, and so it's the most backstory we're getting of Neil, but it's also so his um, uh, like mindset. And, I, and it's interesting how I feel like the structure of the book and the prose reflects each character yes so i think like this is all very neil oriented and then we get these short little chapters about wardell that are cut in very yes. short chapters that um are kind of even more spare and sort of restrained and kind of just forward moving and um almost psychopathic in their restraint of of style in the yes. writing yes i also want to mention like i had because i did read the audiobook so i was i mean listen to the audiobook but like i when i picked up the actual book i was really surprised at like how the book was structured in terms of the paragraph breaks like yes or not the paragraph breaks the chapter breaks like they they're in the middle of the page they don't like go yep. to another page yes um and there's even like a chapter break where it's like in the middle of a conversation <laughs> <laughs> but i think it just lends to this thing that we always talk about, especially um, in like Collateral and in Miami Vice, where it's this unrelenting momentum, like yes. it can't stop moving forward. And I think structuring the book like this um, is really an interesting way to like just keep the action moving forward through the breaks. Um, also, there's no table of contents. No. And I was like, excuse me, how do I, where's the table of content? I kept looking, I was like, where is it? But like, it's just, it just plunges you in. There's no introduction. It is like the nightclub in Miami Vice. It's just like, get in and stay in. As <laughs> like, no, like, we don't, we don't need to tell you because we don't expect that you're going to put it down. I love Katie's notes. You're so okay. cute. <laughs> Look at this chapter break. Yeah. It's the middle of a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway wait wait for listeners who do, i'm gonna have to take a screenshot of that it's, it's katie with a bracket chapter break here question mark <laughs> if i ever lend this book to someone they're gonna be like what the hell 
I have to, I have to lend mine in like I have to lend my galleys edition in six parts. <laughs> it's just ripped it apart and noted yeah. all over. And people can be like, "What the hell did that guy do?" Um, but yeah, like this is such a Neil chapter. I mean, there's also we get the iridescent algae, the origin of the iridescent algae. It's like an Easter egg for Heat fans and Fiji. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So. Um, it's really like it really is it, it just it tells us so much about this person and it is sort of like our final goodbye to neil yeah it's i think you've nailed something that i hadn't quite articulated but it's like almost the style has to match the protagonist of that so like it's such a manhuntery wardell like even though neil and chris or even though chris has the phenomenal Chris Charlene, if you like, prologue of chapter one. Uh, so pro prologue in chapter two, which is like all 1988. And we get so deeply entangled in like the Chris Charlene, like the intoxicant of those two. Then it is like, it surrenders to being a Vincent Hanna book. It's like Vincent Hanna, Vincent right. Hanna, Vincent Hanna, Wardell, Wardell, Vincent Hanna, Vincent Hanna. Neil's just kind of there. Those guys are doing it. You know, that they're, they're, they're the crew, the coast to coast crew that's mystifying the cops and they don't even know it yet. And this, it, it then it goes into Chris, like we're so in Chris's world and in that chaos. And, um, but now we get here. And as you said, it's like Neil, 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 like we're, we've already, we're working through, we're, we're going to these new places. We've talked to Kelso, we're talking to Kelso. We're figuring out how to take down a cartel. And like, I don't know about you. It's just like indoctrination of movies, like no country for old man. And like, the counselor and Sicario it's like taking down a cartel hotel also has a different connotation in 2022. Cause I think we're a little bit more familiar with texts of its kind. And it's just like, Oh, this is a bad, this is a really fucking dangerous idea. <laughs> it's like, this is a real, <laughs> yeah. like, it's like, it's like, if you thought taking down a bank and then the cops might be there, it's like taking down this is like, this is like, he's like, you think I'm going to do a cowboy score? You know, like this is a fucking cowboy score. Like it's, you know, this is kind of born to lose tattoo on your chest cowboy score shit. It's like crazy. And, but the way that you do it is the way that they do it with all this meticulous preparation. They take you through every single lens of it. And it's just like, it's all happening at once. And, and then it ends with this, you know, after everything goes down, which is like extremely tense and full on, but they seem like they're formidable. It's that vulnerability with Elisa and, uh, and family and Gabriella that you're like, oh God, because that's the one thing that they hadn't accounted for is that they never thought that there'd be someone going to that house to wait for them there. Right. And it almost like, I think I've seen some criticism of the book talking about how a lot of it is based on coincidence. And I'm curious if you think that Wardell finding the Adobe with the, the truck truck hauler or whatever it's called the car hauler car transporter that that it it's like that's i don't think that's a coincidence i think it's more like he just looked everywhere yes yes <laughs> um until he found it <laughs> he and someone else described him as a as a terminator yes and he does have that quality but he's just such a psychopath um and a sadist and um yeah it's just it's we've, interesting we've we've gone and this is you know 
for folks who are listening to this podcast and they listen to all of our, uh, imagine listen to most of our shows, or if you don't, like Miami Nice and Collateral Confessions or a campfire of modern man stuff, Katie and I like don't as regularly touch back on old stuff when we talk about it. But this, like, Wardell just seems to me like Francis Dollarhide in Manhunter, which they mm. then, they, which especially in the Red Dragon script, because they take Michael Mann's script and they adapt it for Red Dragon, mm -hmm. they basically take a scene that they go, oh, we're not going to use it in the book. But there's a scene at the end of the, at the end of the Red Dragon film, and it was originally in the screenplay for Manhunter of not doing the Indigata DeVita, you know, shootout that happens. It's that Francis Dolhide goes to Will Graham's house and finds his family because he's disrupted his entire orchestrated plans of doing that. And the whole time that I was reading Wardell, I'm like, Wayne Crow doesn't know about Treo. Like he starts to hunt down the crew one by one. And Wayne Crow is not, I, I think he's, a, he compares to Wardell, but he's not nearly as psychopathic. He's, he's still a little bit flightier. He's still a little bit more, um, kind of improvisational whereas water like gets something in his sights and he's just like i will hunt it down until it is dead like that's his yeah. that's his fear and i don't i didn't find it like an overly contrived coincidence i think it's actually probably more coincidental i think it's sort of essential for the book because i think they want these characters to be in the same space but i don't see i think it's more of a coincidence that neil and the crew are like doing a Chicago heist at the same time as Vincent than it is for Wardell to find out about Neil. Cause whatever, wherever that was set, I think the only reason that Neil is doing a heist there is so Wardell and him can cross paths for part four. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like mm -hmm. that's, yeah, the, yeah, that's yeah. the reason. And so when I'm reading, I'm like, this isn't an overt contrivance. Like movies are full of oh yeah, coincidences. Sure. Like, how do I get this? And life practice? is full of coincidences. Life is, life <laughs> is full of coincidences. How, like I have to be reading you know, I, I think about all the coincidences in my life, even like on a tiny thing. It's like, I have to be reading Twitter and following someone that retweets a review from you to find it. And then I yes. go immediately, <laughs> I love this. Oh, she sounds fun. And then you're like, Henry Rollins in shorts. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well then that's totally. it. That's yeah. like, it's enough. It's enough of a coincidence that didn't, bother me but i think because it's within the parameters it's like oh there was an amazing thing i'm gonna see if i can find it um so what it reminded me of chuck jones the amazing animator mm -hmm. wrote a set of rules it's 11 rules about roadrunner and wily e. coyote cartoons right i love it and, and and he some of them are as follows the roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except going meet me no outside force can harm the coyote only his own ineptitude or the failure of acme products trains and trucks <laughs> were the exception from time to time the coyote could not stop any time if he were not a fanatic no dialogue ever except meet me and yowling in pain the roadrunner must stay on the road for no other reason that he's a roadrunner. Like, so that's like, that's like five rules, but he, he mapped out 11 rules. And I think someone who tweeted and put this back into my, um, put this back into my memory was, this is a great screenwriting tip. Like once you establish the rules of a character, 
it's all in Wardell. Like it's almost like Michael Mann and Meg Gardner when they were working on this character, they're like, what is in the rules of this character? What would he do? And it doesn't feel like inauthentic to the character. He's a psycho. Like he he does he he sees that he sees that his partner's distraction or like he's he's he, you know, he sees that one of his underlings cousin's distraction supplying this other coast to coast crew is actually some of the way that his crew got hacked into so he takes it personally and then he comes after neil because he just feels like i'm gonna go get this guy because that's i'm a vindictive prick and so it doesn't feel like it's inauthentic to me ever it feels like they made the rules and that's that yeah. and it's like movies and things like that are full of those rules but it's only if you're smart enough as a storyteller to go, I'm making the rules for this character and therefore I'm going to adhere to these rules as the character. Yeah, that was one thing that I learned like first day of film school was like the movie sets the rules and then it has to follow the rules. And so, you know, you can buy anything as long as it follows the rules. Yes, yes. You know, and so I think that, that that's a but great point But the rules of the character, make. even if they don't make sense, it's the rules right. of the it's character. The, yeah, or the story or whatever or it story. is. It's like... Yes. We're in space. There's aliens. You're like, okay, cool. We're in space. There's aliens. Like that's the rules. <laughs> um, so yeah, and just the fact that like Wardell is sort of this like unstoppable force. He's like Michael Myers. Like yes. he, yeah. he just won't stop until he kills. And so you just buy that that is what he's doing. He's driving poor Savaboda around Yuma, <laughs> Arizona, twenty four seven until they find the damn hauler. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and that whole, this whole sequence, um, of them taking this out. I love that. It's just this foreboding threat. Yes. He's like a shark coming and you're like, no matter all of Neil's preparation, you know, that this guy is truly a blind spot. Like that thing of like, why are you asking these questions? It, it, it's a callback to like, why are you asking these questions? Give me a license. And Chris is like, why are you doing that? He's like, all it takes is one person to get too curious. You know what I mean? Like one person to get too curious and then someone's honest that we don't expect. And that's the thing. Um, mm -hmm. And we we often get reached out to on socials, like about our opinions of Michael Mann stuff, both Katie and I. And someone recently came up to me on Twitter and was like, you know, with all Neil's stuff, I, I just want to say like, isn't it a bit stupid that they hire Wayne Grow? And I'm like... Well, for one, the movie wouldn't exist like with, <laughs> right. with the greatest respect. The movie wouldn't exist. But the second one is no, like the rules of heat is that Nate is a guy who secures people. He recruits people, you know, just like a corporation or someone will get a recruiter and they'd see someone's resume and they're like that. And it, like the resume in this world is they had to have done time in X prison and they had to have done this sort of thing and they have to have this recommendation. And for Nate, they've probably hired 10 other people between the time of heat and this, like just to do little jobs and then come on and off and depending on where they are. And he just happens to, they pick a psycho. Like they don't realize that he's mm -hmm. a psycho. Some jobs might call for a psycho, but on this crew, it's like, no, we don't want any more heat coming around <laughs> the corner. So right. he, he, he starts the fire, like he ignites the heat and it's, that's what it is. So it's like, it's like, you can try and rationalize it all you want, but at some point we're talking about a film. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about something that wouldn't exist if that thing didn't happen. So. Right. Yeah. And there's so much like, I think in their line of work, there's so much trust and that's like part of the relationship yeah. between Neil and particularly Chris and Sharito is like, 
they trust each other. And so they keep working together all the time. But like, you do have to ultimately trust Nate or trust this person who comes in. And, you know, it wouldn't be a very interesting movie if it was just like preparedness. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like, what happens when preparedness meets unpredictability? You get a movie. Yeah. So, it's called conflict. It's right. the key to so, drama. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, what happens when someone who is as organized and perfectionist as Neil meets this unpredictable psychopathic element? Um, who was, who were we talking to who like said something about, um, like dirty, like some like Wangro being like dirty or something. Like I'm trying to remember, like just like the the irritation that like a man protagonist would feel at someone like Wangro who is like disorganized and messy. Yes, I don't yeah. know. I, I can't I remember can't, who we we're talking to, uh, but we've, it's, we've had we're we're now sixty odd episodes <laughs> into my like, But he's so just this ultimate like irritant, yes. right? To 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 Neil. So yes, yeah, it, it makes it makes it might have been justin but it yeah. like it makes him it's like you need to see someone like neil who is so controlled get thrown off yes so you and need the chaos yes you need it what were your favorite parts of this part of the book um what what's got the most katie walsh scribbles and annotations <laughs> okay i did a lot of scribbling about the way that neil talks about time yes in this chapter because there are a couple there's like a scene where he and um elisa go to the sand dunes or they're like alone and they're looking at they're at the adobe they're looking at sand dunes they're talking about smugglers and um they start to talk about how they met and who they were when they met and he's talking about fulsome and there's just all this stuff about time you know like doing time time is luck um and uh how he became this philosopher in prison reading yes. Camus and um you know there's this on 242 there's this paragraph where uh like he says all we have is this moment we live it conscious of what it means nothing but completely live it that's what it is where did you read this she asks Folsom what's my life why do the time what am I doing? What's any of this mean? Hit the library and said, where's the philosophy about why we're here, about time, what my life means? Dude with the book cart turned me on to Camus. So like, there's all this stuff about like ephemerality and the the sand dunes and the footprints and how everything is constantly shifting in time. And it's just like, you know, time is luck question. I, I just got like really turned on by all of this you know philosophy about time and presence and ephemeral things that is so present in all of Michael Mann's work and um that was like really interesting to me just seeing him thread it throughout um and and then at the end I mean I was completely gut punched by Elisa's death scene i mean i can't say it's like my favorite but no, it's, it's just not, it's, so yeah. heartbreaking and the way that it's written is so beautiful and yes. there's all this stuff about you know when she dies it doesn't say that she dies it just says the sun sinks away shadows etching the slope and sliding across them and then the last line of the chapter is 
He stares at the desert sunrise at his hands. They're empty except for Elisa's blood. So it's like the sun sets, she dies, the sun rises, he moves on. And so it's just this thing about shifting time and and then also the the every time they talk about them having sex or like being in love it's like they're in the now you know what i mean so it's like she keeps him present she keeps him grounded and um when she's dying he's like i'm here now and she's saying something like i want i'm happy now like it's yes. all about this presence of them together um so i think that like this is sort of it's everything we talk about in miami vice and and Gong Li and Colin and and their relationship together with time. So I just loved seeing all of this sort of laid out yes. and done so so beautifully. And I was also like getting into I'm like, oh my God, they're talking about sand and beaches. And he's obsessed with beaches in paradise. And like <laughs> the sand is shifting, it changes, it's ephemeral, it's like utopia, but it's also, you know, constantly shifting. Like this is why his characters are obsessed with beaches. <laughs> So anyway, um, that stuff was like really, really my favorite part of this chapter. Um, but it's and... like, it's the most naked thing. Cause we talk about it like philosophically, like we're like Michael Mann, a deeply existential filmmaker. And like for him to have a character and he's like, I don't think he's like, I'm not essaying Camus, but I understand that this character has adopted this philosophy. And so like Vincent finding these things like the Camus and the Marcus Aurelius in the books in the opening chapter of the book and then uh, I being part of the book and then in Los Angeles well we're still in Los Angeles and kind of like l walking around his space walking around this empty space staring out to the ocean you see this here and you're like oh this is like this is why these characters have stuck with him for so long because they're the greatest like synthesis of these ideas that he's like he it was the first time that he like truly was like, this is the essay of these characters and I'm actually both actively using them, but I'm also, they are vessels for my ideas. And I, I totally agree. Like for me, this chapter, when I think about it, I think about, you know, I think about actually a later part in part five where Chris is like, we were banditos and like, it's the bandito chapter. It's like, these guys are, on the frontier they're in the desert this is like a western that you know a contemporary neo you know, neo western sort of playing out in front of us like the cartel heist and then taking it down and then the canyon shootout and staring out into these desert locations and the sublime for us rather than the ocean being the desert and the sand shifting and it's it's just got everything that you kind of want and it's a nice coder and close on Neil before we propel ourselves from four into a very brief five and then into six which like brings all the ideas and all the characters together and it's just like it's unrelenting until the finish it's like whatever mm -hmm. you whatever you were thinking about any part of the book I think you earn it by the time you hit six it's just like it's flying by then you know that new time Vincent's off the rails Chris's lean mean fighting machine he's most Vincent in collateral sort of deal it's it's got everything and i i think that i think that the tone uh, especially at the back end of four like I, I felt myself really like the chris stuff like orientating yourself to the world was like a slowish chapter for me like i was a bit like you with this part which is like oh this is all process but honestly from the moment 
you get to the cartel heist in four, this was the moment where I was like, this is, this is when the book became unputdownable. I was like, mm-hmm. it flew. I was like, my my hand couldn't keep up with pages because I was <laughs> right. flying through it. Um, but yeah, you're so right. I e- Excellent, excellent stuff here. And the big one also for me is when Neil is sitting at that table before he calls Edie and he's looking around to all these wives, you know, it's kind of like the mob wives scene who are completely aware of what all their partners do. It does hit you a little bit different after you read this section of the book mm-hmm. because you're like, he had that. He was the guy who had the partner. Like he was the guy whose wife was more involved. He was the guy whose wife would be sitting at the table or his partner would be sitting at the table and have a, have Gabriella sitting at the table with all these other guys and their kids. And so the loss has a little bit more um just has something else another echo another possibility that now exists you know in 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 partnership with the with the the heat text as the film um that it's it's just really special yeah it's um and especially like the the sort of stuff the love the loving stuff that they're saying to each other as she's dying like she's saying you know, I was empty, you know, she was a widow. And he's like, you, I was gray. Like you brought me to color, like all this stuff. It's just like so heartbreaking and beautiful. And there's these lines about him trying to put a cage around his heart. And you feel like that is the Neil that we meet at the beginning of of Heat is the the one who has his heart in a cage. And I don't really buy the Edie romance. I'm one of the the Edie deniers, but like, <laughs> but you can denier. see why he maybe wants to open up a little bit. I I, th- I feel like I think the Elisa romance is the one that really speaks to me now, yes. having read this book, because um, yes. it's so it's such a big. They both are so vulnerable at the end, and it is this like big romance between equals, as you say. Like he, Elisa is his Charlene. Yes. Um, and I do love, I mean, also like just to kind of hop off of um, part four a little bit, I do love the Chris parts. And I feel yes. like in the movie, Chris will be the star. Yeah, absolutely. Of he too. It's like, it's all Chris. And I loved the Ciudad del Este stuff, like just learning about that, that world and um, get, being immersed more in that like Paraguayan crime syndicate world was really fun for me. I also wanted to mention in this chapter, like they mention, they're talking about the hotel and it's called La Chinesca. And um, Cerrito says, or somebody says, um, oh, Neil, he says, lots of Chinese Mexicans, some built the railroads and stayed, others landed here when the gringos ran them out of California. So it's this it's this kind of another, I think, obsession of, of Michael Mann's, which is like, the Chinese Cubans yes. and the Taiwanese in Paraguay and these like unexpected cultural melting pots in places where that have been colonized or, or where a lot of different people, you know, come and go and kind of reminding us of like the diversity of these places. So that was like a little Easter egg as well, kind of just like the architecture of the hotel there. Um, that's one of my favorite, there's two Australian films. Um, one of them is a very recent film called Goldstone directed by an indigenous mm-hmm. filmmaker named Ivan Sen. And in that movie, you've got an indigenous detective, Jay Swan, um, who's in an outback town. And the whole story is about this huge mining conglomerate that smuggles in illegal Chinese immigrants who basically act as a prostitute, a contemporary sort of 
prostitution ring for these mining things and they break a whole bunch of laws and they're outside of the purview of law for the largest respect and at the beginning of the film the the sort of if you like this tiny like coda prologue sort of style score you see photos of the original australian gold rush that were populated by Chinese migrants who came and oriented themselves in the country. And there were things like that. And even like a classic Aussie movie, like the man from Snowy river, you've got all these people who are like, they speak in, you know, you've got the main character who speaks in a very contemporary Australian manner. And then you've got like American characters and you've got UK characters. And it's like the gold rush brought diversity and all those things. And Michael Mann loves those movements of people because like the gold rush prior to war was one of the biggest instigators for the movement of peoples in the world it's like why san francisco exists like the golden gate bridge exists there and there's a chinatown because so many migrants came over to make their fortune and it happened in australia to a much lesser extent too and it's like even when you drive through new south wales where i live like there's a whole bunch of towns that if you drive north and slightly inland in australia there's a whole bunch of towns that are now like so small and tiny and ghost towns or whatever but when they started they were booming multi-ethnic hubs of people who were just going out and trying to make their fortune and once that exhausted and sort of sucked the color out of the earth they just left like they took their fortune they went home they went to america they went to other parts of australia they settled and so i also love that too because he he kind of just wants to touch that it's something that doesn't necessarily need to be there in the final text if you think about the movie but i love the color like the the literal color of all of that diversity and how people move around and why the different ethnic makeups like Michael Mann's so hyper aware of it. That's why he's obsessed yeah. with LA. That's why he loves yeah. LA. The yeah. melting pot. Yeah. No, I love, I love that he just pays attention to things like that and um, draws it out for us to think about. And so I think that was one of the parts that I loved about part three or like the Chris chapter, because it was just really fun to like dive into that world. The funnest thing that I almost do in my life is doing this show, Miami Nice, with you and our collateral Aww. collection di digressions, all those, all those things. This is such a fun show because it balances really highfalutin pretension and the absolute most fever pitch thirst that is. And 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 I'm like, <laughs> it's it's so fun, and I'm so grateful that you're part of this. And I would not have even considered taking a a, a shot at this novel without talking to you and it's always a blast talking to you and i'm so looking forward to us in 2023 continuing our modern man saga that is miami nice and you're just the best you're truly such an insightful and inspiring critic but when you're silly no one <laughs> almost makes no one almost makes me laugh as much as you and i love it so thank you so much for being a part of this uh you're the best bud and thank you for saying that and i love to dumb it down <laughs> <laughs> not dumb it down but be silly have a little fun so that's, uh yeah. be horny and weird and and uh you know that i, I can do that that that, that, the, the, that is this this is with it this this is our process this is our process <laughs> this is our skill set it's like you right. get it you get all the serious stuff out and then your mom says you need what can you please tell people that your mom was the next miami nice shirt your mom wanted she, us to she get was, she goes oh you should get a t-shirt that says fast penis and i was like what the hell is she talking about and she's like i'm listening to the episode is that what he said she was listening to the jordan harper episode oh entitled c penis <laughs> 
so we do we need to get some sea penis t-shirts and just a picture of a boat uh so that's the next round kate uh <laughs> are you ready for that <laughs> my and mom like, has a request <laughs> kate sells one shirt <laughs> it's for my mom She'd wear it too. I mean, that's a, you know what? That's a, where I get it from is from my mom being absolutely oh. shameless, oh. ridiculous, silly human being. Um, anyways, <laughs> thank you. This is yes. a, a treat as always. Oh, you're on the air. <laughs> a heat sequel. Imagine. A man lands at LAX. Grey suit, grey hair, sunglasses. He walks through the terminal carrying a briefcase, only stopping when another suited man bangs into him. Their briefcases drop to the floor and they each pick up the other man's. A professional switch complete. They go their separate ways. The first man, Vincent, leaves the terminal and walks out into the LA sunshine. This is the first time Vincent has been to LA. When he's been here previously, he was known as Chris Chihurlis. When I read Heat 2, I kept thinking what collateral would have been like if Chris had gone off into the criminal world of South America and Asia and become Vincent instead. That special call-in was from the incredible Stephen Keddy, who is an author, and you can find his book Suburb or Running and Jumping out now. He is a longtime friend of One Heat Minute Productions, so thank you, mate, for sending that through. Josh Caldwell, as always, amazing filmmaker, hugely insightful. His new flick, Manning the Line, is going to be available very soon, so look out for it on your local streamers and check out the list of everything else Josh has done in the show notes of the show. And of course, thank you to my incredible undercut partner in crime, all things modern man, the great Katie Walsh. You can find her at the Tribune News Service or LA Times or every pretty much week here at Miami Nice, whether we're doing a Miami Nice show, whether we're doing collateral confessions or other stuff, she's around. You'll find her there. Or if you want to join our Patreon, you can find her on our Discord. Guys, thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of One Heat Minutes Heat 2 Book Club. We'll catch you on another episode just around the corner. You know, and it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then, he might not have succeeded. It's incredible because, like, if you if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch Fearless. <laughs> Not a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark. A uh, year of living dangerously, uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of the place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that and something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me and I don't think I ever really recovered from it <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. 
like I don't think it's actually possible to make an. They say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Yes. Because no one watches that movie then thinks I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced, like bar none, hands down. Like no yeah. one else is even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far. But I, I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way. And we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air. Yes. Because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game repeatedly to <laughs> many properties. There are films of his that I hold very dear. Fearless, uh, you know, uh, the Mosquito Coast. I will fight somebody if they talk bad about the Mosquito Coast. It's, man, I love that movie. But in general, I just think he is a special filmmaker, a smart, lyrical, um, hallucinatory filmmaker. He's a very dreamy filmmaker, and I don't think he gets his due. You know, Master and Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's... Uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's a, such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment in, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a an old fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That that's the movie that I wanted to see. Ten of those, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything. And God bless you. But Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things. Again, I I am not uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> But there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're gonna pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you, you, pull, you pull out of this, Blake. That's right, our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander. The series is called Podcaster and Commander.